there are more explanations uh, given by the Buddha about the factors of enlightenment. And here, these refer to the meditation, so it's quite um, interesting. They're called wrong season and right season, but um, who knows what the Pali word, it's probably wrong time and right time or something like that. At such time as the mind is sluggish, it's the wrong time for cultivating the factor of enlightenment that is tranquility. It's the wrong time for cultivating the factor of enlightenment which is concentration or for cultivating that which is equanimity. Why is that? When the mind is sluggish, it is hard to raise it up by these conditions. Suppose a man wants to make a little fire blaze up. If he heaps wet grass on it, wet cow dung and wet sticks, if he exposes it to rain and wind and sprinkles it with dust, would that man be able to make a little fire blaze up? Surely not. Just so, at such a time as the mind is sluggish, it's the wrong time for cultivating the fact of enlightenment, which is tranquility, concentration or equanimity. Because when the mind is sluggish, it is hard to raise it up by these conditions. What is being said here is that when the mind is not bright, when the mind feels sleepy, that's the wrong time to try to have calm or the absorption or anything connected with the calm state of mind in the meditation. The three which are mentioned are the three factors of enlightenment, tranquility, concentration and uh, equanimity, which can be considered to be second, third and fourth absorption. The first one is not mentioned. The first one, when it's done properly, has a little excitement in it. So a mind which is dull and sluggish or rather or sleepy, sleepy could wake up with it. However, it is not the time to try and do that. The time to try to become calm and concentrated is when the mind is bright and awake and aware. Now, it's also said what to do when the mind is sleepy. But when the mind is sluggish, it's a time for cultivating the factor of enlightenment that is the investigation into dhammas. The time for cultivating the factor of enlightenment which is energy and the time for cultivating the factor of enlightenment which is delight. Why so? Because the mind 
The sluggish mind is easily raised up by such conditions, uh, it's easily elevated by such conditions. So what actually is the important aspect for the meditation is the fact that when the mind is sleepy or it feels lazy, when torpor has set in, it can't be bothered, then this is obviously the wrong time for trying to have the calm state. In fact, it won't happen because the mind will get more and more sluggish. That's the time to do inside meditation. So any of the methods which we have already discussed about inside meditation, those should then be practiced. One of the simplest methods of inside meditation is recognizing the impermanence of the breath. Not trying to stay on the breath to become calm <coughs> and have the factors of, uh, of the absorption, but to recognize the impermanence of the, of the breath. Now here it says, that is the time for Dhamma investigation, well, to raise up energy, of course, but the energy may actually arise out of the factor that one recognizes something. Insight brings energy with it because the mind becomes interested. Now, energy is also aroused by effort, as we, as we heard yesterday. Now, if we make that effort, energy may come back. In any case, the inside method at that time, if successful, may bring energy with it, because there is something new that has been seen, possibly. Mind is very tricky. It always wants to have something interesting, always wants to be um, coddled, and uh, it wants to have its own way. So we have to give it its own way a little bit. We have to sort of let it be halfway, meet it halfway. So if it's very <coughs> full of um, laziness or um, disinterest or tiredness, it's no time to force it to do something else. On the contrary, when we do, it will probably uh, reply by falling asleep immediately. So if we give it something interesting to look at, that may rouse it up. It may arouse, the because of the interest, it may arouse new energy. Now if we look at the impermanence of the breath and recognize the fact that the breath being impermanent as it is, every in-breath is finished, the outburst is finished, is the support for our life, our life support, that we have nothing that is solid, that supports us, but a bit of wind that keeps changing all the time. And if that doesn't do it, then we'll be dead. It might give rise to some new understanding of ourselves. Out of the three, out of impermanence, dukkha, and substancelessness, Impermanence is the easiest one to investigate. 
At the same time as we're doing that, we may go one step further and see how impermanent our thoughts are, how impermanent every sensation is. If we watch the thoughts and we see them arise, we will also watch them cease and we have a very good indication of their nature, very fleeting. Now the same goes for sensations and feelings, physical sensations, emotional feelings. We can watch anything that arises during that meditation time and just become aware of its very short life and its disappearance. The heartbeat, as far as the physical body is concerned, or also the understanding that this physical body has changed its appearance so dramatically from the time that it was born until now that we can't even, without um, real imagination, say which one is me. Of course, we take it for granted that all these bodies that we've been during this lifetime are me, but that's only because we don't investigate. We just take it for granted and don't think about it. But if we have an investigation in the med- during the meditation, we can very well remember what we looked like and what we look like now, for instance, from old pictures when we were small. So the body change, but also the body change through the eating. The food comes in, it gets digested and comes out again. Constant changing process. If it didn't come in, we'd starve to death. If it didn't come out, we'd have to have an operation. It's got to be like that, in and out, same with drinking. So we can, at this time, from the impermanence of the breath, go to all the other functions which we have, besides breathing, which are thinking, feeling, sensations, and all bodily functions and then try to find something within us which is not impermanent and changing. Look for something that is really having the me characteristic because within all that change of the body and the thoughts and the feelings we're hanging on to a me. So which one of all this constant movement is this me, which is the unchanging part, which is always called the same thing, always called me. So there must be something that we are considering to be me, which is it? Now this is a very um, fruitful investigation. It may go as far or as, say, as simple as one can make it and which is, the ta- which is the thing to do when the mind doesn't have the ability to go to the calm without being sleepy. The arousal of energy just by wanting to is very often not possible. One of the, the um, guidelines the Buddha gave to for that is to give oneself a pep talk 
but that may not always be successful in the meditation. Uh, one may not believe it. One may say it, but one may not believe it. One may have that. Uh, it may not. The mind may be too sleepy for that. But the investigation of the inside west investigation is very helpful. Now that the, the impermanence is the most direct method. And one of the other methods, which also are geared towards, which also geared towards insight, and which is also fruitful and interesting, is to investigate this body as to the elements that it consists of and see that there is nothing within those elements which could possibly be called me or which is different and separate from any elements that exist in the whole universe. The four primary elements are the constituents of all that exists in form. All body, all form, have those primary elements. The first is the earth element. That's the solidity we feel. Now when we sit in meditation and we want to do inside meditation because the mind is not capable at the time of being quiet, peaceful, we can go to that feeling of solidity, of heaviness, the touch sensation of the body on the seat or the legs on each other, the touch sensation of the hands. Wherever we go, we can feel one solid object touching another. It's earth element, with solidity. Now we can go further and see earth element in flesh and bones in ourselves, but the earth element exists exactly in the same way in the pillow and the floor that we're touching. No difference. It's just as solid, if not more so. And from that we can infer that the earth outside is earth element, and the tree in its hardness has earth element, and all everything that is hard and solid is earth element. And when we feel it in ourselves, then sometimes the mind goes spontaneously to those factors which are outside of ourselves in nature and which have exactly the same element in them, the solidity. Now air even has that solidity. Otherwise, the birds couldn't fly in it. The airplanes couldn't be held up in it. The earth element in earth is, of course, predominant, whereas in air, air element is predominant, but it's existing in all of them. Every one of the four elements exists in all the other in the other three. So within ourselves, noticing, recognizing that this is what we're made up from, and then seeing the connection to all that's around us. With those things, all of these insight methods are geared towards reducing our self-centered idea that we are actually each one of us 
the center of the universe, the universe as we know it, that we're something special, someone special, and that we're different and separated. And by being different and separated, we are alienated. And because of being alienated, we're also feeling threatened. Now, some people do want to be different and separate and special and use that in two absurd manners. One is superiority complex and the other one is inferiority complex. But if we see ourselves to be exactly as everything else and everyone else, none of that can arise because what can we be superior to and what can we be inferior to? Nothing. There's nothing there. It's all made up of the same stuff. The whole thing is one and the same wherever we look. The second element is the fire element. The fire element is temperature. Now it's very simple to feel the temperature within oneself. Sometimes we're cold, sometimes we're hot, and most of the time we try to be just right, putting on the necessary clothing or taking them all off. And when we can't manage that, then we put on fans or heaters. We have a very small um, limit for our temperature. Anything that goes over 90 degrees is already boiling hot for us, and anything that goes below 60, we feel already very cold. So we have a very small range that we feel that the temperature is right. But we can feel the temperature within ourselves and we can feel the temperature in every object. Everything has a certain temperature. This is much colder, for instance, than this pillow here. And, of course, wherever we go, if we touch it, we can feel the temperature. Now, fire element, but has also a function. It's not only temperature. It has a function of destruction. Without the fire element, we couldn't digest. It destroys. It burns up. It burns up all the, well, the, uh, that what we take in. And it burns up energy, it burns up our calories, it burns up. And with, because of the fire element, we have constant decay. Everything is being burned up by it. And But if we didn't have it, there wouldn't be any life. Because life, the life, the living factor of all that exists is that burning up and change. There has to be decay in order to have renewal. So that's part, that is the function of the fire element. The earth element has a function of solidity. The solidity which we can use, like in a hammer, that solidity which we can use in this body. The solidity of the body is a necessity for us to live in this atmosphere that the earth has. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to live here if we didn't have a solid body. But it has a very... um, detrimental function for our insight because the solidity of this body gives rise to the idea that we are 
a separate entity and that we are really somebody and that this has to, this some being somebody and being a separate entity has to be protected. So that function of solidity of the earth element gives rise to a great deal of delusion for us. The fire element we don't really notice except when we either get caught or cold or when the fire breaks out and we run away from it. Um, that's the only time we really worry about it. But it is that element which brings about the most of the impermanence. It has that the most. The others also, of course, are involved, but this one is the one that has the access to it. Obviously, there's a temperature everywhere, and the sun and the moon and the stars and everything brings out some of the temperature. If we touch a tree, there's temperature. We touch the earth, there's temperature. Touch water, there's temperature. Now, the other, th- the next one that we are concerned with is the water element. Now, water is well, that's what we are consisting of mostly. We are almost 80% water. And yet we look so solid. Well, that's the earth element doing it. But water has a function. Water element has a function of binding. It binds things together. If we have flour and put water in, we get dough. It works like glue. So if we didn't have so much water in us, almost 80%, all our cells would be running around separately. It would look rather funny, but it would be much easier to understand that we aren't a separate entity because the optical illusion would be missing. With the elements the way they are constituted, we have such an optical illusion that it's extremely difficult for most people that haven't practiced long enough to even have an inkling of the fact that this is all an illusion. The whole thing is just like a puppet theater, which is also an illusion. Now, of course, we know that a puppet theater is an illusion. We know there's somebody behind there pulling the strings. But with us, we don't know that. We think we are really pulling the strings ourselves. The uh, water element has the uh, fact, uh, the uh, the uh, action of binding, and we can feel the water element in saliva, in urine, blood, tears, and sweat. The water element which is existing within us, in all the other parts of the body is not easily felt, but those are. Now, obviously, there's all that everywhere. Everything is stuck together and keeps together because of that. Now, there's rain, there's dew, there's streams and creeks, but there's the sap rising in the trees, there's the um, liquid within the stalks of the flowers, life-giving, And water is also a life-giving element because without water everything dies. So uh, these elements 
can be found in ourselves and as we find them relate and infer especially when one's sitting outside to all that around one with exactly the same elements now we know for a fact that every other person has the same element that's no nothing that we have to even think about they've got to have it otherwise they couldn't be a person but it is also very interesting to find that all this exists in everything out there and when we find that everything exists in all the manifestation in the universe we might get off our high horse of thinking that we are the pinnacle of creation we certainly aren't we are part and parcel of it which is far more comfortable to be than to be the pinnacle it's very difficult to sit on a pedestal it's constantly getting rocked and very few people are able to have that position with any um, ease and comfort but to be part and parcel of everything and just be a very small ingredient of a huge creation is much more comfortable much easier and far less threatening and then also one feels embedded in a whole instead of trying to find a place for oneself somewhere we don't need a place for ourselves we have a place we're right there where we belong in the midst of the whole of creation the fourth element primary element is air or wind now obviously that can be easily felt in the breath there's no problem there at all we have the wind in the body also and that has a function of movement air wind is a function of movement every time we move our body a hand a leg or anything there is air being dispersed if we move like that the air that is there has to yield to the hand so that movement is also the air element or the wind now the wind outside is the air element we couldn't live without it we breathe it all the time nothing could live out there without having air around it and obviously we can see it when the wind blows we can't see the wind but we can see the movement which is generated by the wind so the air and its movement can be seen then and as we see that we can also realize that growth is part of that the physical growth the physical growth of everything that exists and the same the physical decline all that is movement in all directions there's constant movement in the sky we can see the clouds moving it's very easy to see the uh, air or wind element in that now if we can relate our own four elements to those around us 
we are doing an insight meditation method. Methods are methods by any name. It's the results that are either calm or insight. There are only two pathways in meditation. There are innumerable methods. Now, some of you have heard all this before, but some of you have not. So that's why I have to repeat these things for those of you who have come later. And the others can practice patience and compassion. It's very good practice. Calm and insight. There's only two directions, innumerable methods. And the calm has certain methods and the insight has certain methods with which there are altogether about 40. Now, it wouldn't uh, do to practice 40 different methods. The mind would get even more confused than it already is. But it's certainly necessary to practice a few methods because of the fact that the mind is what it is. It is um, um, so unruly that one has to give it its head here and there so that it has a bit of entertainment and can practice different methods rather than entertaining itself with uh, discursive thinking about the future and the past. So we rather give it, allow it to have different things to do than having it do what it would like to do, namely just thinking about nothing at all. One of the insight methods, as I've explained, is to watch and observe the impermanence in all that arises. Another one is watching the elements. There are many others, but I'll leave it, let it go at, at the moment at these two. The elements is an important aspect of gaining insight into the impersonal nature of this body. Now, people will readily agree to the fact that, to the statement that which says we are not this body. And yet, we look at this body, we look at ourselves in the mirror, and we see whom? Me, of course. That's me. Who else? There's nobody else there in the mirror, so it's got to be me. We can't, don't even entertain the thought that what we're seeing is a conglomeration of four elements put together <clears throat> in a certain way and having arisen because of craving. We never think of it that way. That's why the Buddha's methods for insight are all geared toward seeing things as they really are. These are the words by the Buddha. <coughs> to see things as they really are means that we no longer see them just so superficially that they don't even make an impact. If we look into the mirror, it doesn't make an impact. Other that we look terrible and we think, oh, I've, I've really got to do something, I'm looking terrible. Uh, that's the only thing that makes an impact, maybe. Or we see, oh, it's a big spot on my clothing. I don't like that. But then other than that, nothing happens. But if we were to look properly and in the mirror or at ourselves, we would eventually 
come to the understanding that there's nothing here except a totally changing phenomena which has no reason to call itself me other than that we've made that up. It's an idea which is embedded in humanity and everybody calls themselves me. But there's no reason for it. Now that needs investigation. That's what the second factor of enlightenment is. The investigation. So the elements is one way and impermanence is another way. Now, obviously, the Buddha says that when the mind is very sluggish and sleepy, it's also a good time to get into the first jhana, which is quite, well, it's a little bit exciting. But in order to get there, most people find that extremely difficult because the mind being sleepy doesn't go there. But if one can do it, it's fine and the sleepy mind may wake up then because it is a bit of an, an exciting and um, an energizing feeling it can be, it doesn't necessarily have to be and again he gives this uh, simile of making a fire and he repeats, when the mind is sluggish then it's the time for cultivating the fact of enlightenment which is the investigation into Dhamma, Dhammas. The investigation into the cultivating energy and cultivating delight. Now here's another way that the wrong time can be for meditation. It's at a time when the mind is elated it's the wrong time for cultivating the fact of enlightenment which is investigation into Dhammas. It's the wrong time for cultivating the fact of enlightenment which is energy and the wrong time for cultivating the fact of enlightenment which is delightful sensation, PT. I think I've used PT. P-I-T-I, it's a Pali word for this first jhana. When the mind is elated, it's hard to be calmed by such conditions. So, when the mind is elated <coughs> or excited, elated, it may have had a very um, interesting thing happen, and the mind is all agog about whatever it is. In other words, the mind is uh, not calm to start out with. Now, this is the thing that we need to remember. People usually want to meditate in order to become calm and peaceful. But we can't become calm and peaceful in meditation if we don't start out that way already. We have to start out calm and peaceful in order to have calm and peaceful meditation. This is why I give those four different ways of, or four things to look at before we start medita meditation love for oneself and appreciation for one's efforts, confidence that one can do it, gratitude and determination. These are all states of mind which help to calm the mind and put it on a level of ease. But if 
we don't have a level of ease in the mind at all, then it's just very difficult to become calm. So the time when the mind is excited, then one should not do the investigation into dhammas. Then is the time then it's the time to try to calm it. Now to try to calm it, as I said, these four things do help. The appreciation, the lovingness towards oneself and people who are near, the uh, gratitude and the confidence in oneself and the determination to give oneself. Now, at a time when the mind is elated, it's the time for cultivating the factor of enlightenment which is tranquility, the one which is concentration, and the one which is equanimity. The elated mind is easily raised up by such conditions. The word elated, I dare say, is not exactly the right translation. Again, not having the Pali, and it doesn't say anything what it's being translated. doesn't say. Um, it's an excited mind. It's an elated mind is not having such a difficult time. It's the excited mind which has a difficult time. And the excited mind is the opposite of the sluggish mind. So we have either the sluggish mind, which needs to be raised up or out of its sluggishness through the um, um, investigation into insight and it's the excited mind which needs to be calmed down because of uh, trying to become tranquil. Now the tranquility is that which most people find so extremely difficult. The investigation into dhammas, although it may not bring any results, it's not that difficult to see that the breath is impermanent, is it? That's not good enough. Anybody can see that the breath is impermanent. I mean, any kid can understand that. That's not enough. There has to be, following that, that one sees that the breath is impermanent, there has to be a connection made. Now, a mind which is really investigating can make a connection. What's the connection that we can make? Well, there are several. The first connection is that if, the, if we are so dependent upon this completely impermanent wind or air element that the solidity which we think we feel is an illusion. That we are very fragile. And with that fragility we may be finished any moment. Now if we really see that strongly urgency arises, urgency to practice, with some vega in Pali. It's a factor which has to arise one day if one really wants to make an end to dukkha. If one wants to have a hobby, another hobby, one more than one has already, as me and as meditation, then of course that's not necessary. And then of course one won't get the results. Meditation is not a hobby. But if one really wants to make an end to Dukkha, then that urgency has to arise. And that urgency has to come out of the understanding if the breath is so impermanent and we are so dependent upon that, this 
solid entity which seems to be so rooted in uh, life is the total illusion it may be finished any moment and it doesn't have the solidity that we think it has it's far more transparent than we thought it was it's that constant inner movement is happening so seeing that the breath impermanent is not sufficient the inside connections have to be made so inside is just what I'm saying with that is that inside is just as difficult as calm now when the mind is excited that is the that is the time the Buddha says to practice tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So maybe we could um, turn that around and say practice equanimity, and from that get some concentration and get some tranquility from that. Although these three are here used as factors of the different jhanas, two, three, four. Um, I want to use it the other way around and say the mental or emotional state of equanimity first, from which concentration may arise, from which tranquility will be the result. The emotional state of equanimity, if we are excited, we can bring together again by recognizing the impermanent. Well, not always. The mind's not always excited. The mind's not always thinking about everything. The mind that is excited is the mind that's thinking about lots of things and without much um, direction, very little direction for the mind. So when we see that happening and can actually label it or name it, we can then see the impermanence of it all and gain equanimity from that. Even mindedness towards all these wonderful thoughts that the mind has, which are all um, bringing nothing, bring no results. And when that is the case, then we may be able to concentrate again on the meditation subject. So the sluggish mind is very, finds it difficult, but the excited mind finds it just as difficult. And most people alternate between one and the other because it's the one that has already been able to meditate well and has been trained is the one that has a mind that is even-minded, equanimous. And the mind that is like that, well, that can meditate, but how does it get that way? From having meditated. That's catch-22, isn't it? So it gets that way from having done it. So we have to deal with two mind states uh, like an overall mind state, sluggish and excited, and try to work with them in a way which is most beneficial and successful. One is getting, just using insight methods, and the other one is calming the mind down, but also with insight, with seeing the impermanence of the whole thing and thereby no longer being so interested in all these thought processes, and when one is no longer so interested in the thought processes, the mind does calm down. And then, as it calms down, then working on the concentration. Now, the concentration meaning staying with the meditation subject, the breath, and as one stays with the breath, it's possible that 
the first or the second factor arises. Now it's quite possible that a peacefulness arises, a tranquility, without first having experienced the um, delightful sensation or the joy. That's fine. That peacefulness can then be the springboard for experiencing those two. It can also happen that this peacefulness becomes deeper and is actually the meditation subject. Either way is fine. It doesn't matter. As long as the mind stops thinking. Eventually, the trained mind can do the jhanas exactly by numbers. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. In the beginning, it doesn't matter. Just whatever happens to pay attention to it and try to stay with it for a longer period of time. So if the mind's excited, seeing that also as impermanent, gaining equanimity from that impermanency is really not important. What's so important about all this? And then from that equanimity, using it for the concentration, and if then some peacefulness arises, that may be the springboard, it may also be the meditation subject. Either way is fine. At the time when the mind is elated, at the time for cultivating the factor that is tranquility, concentration, equanimity, equanimity. The elated mind, the excited mind, is easily calmed by such conditions. I guess the Buddha didn't know us, did he? Easily calmed. <laughs> and here's the last sentence to that whole thing, which was not included in the others, and it says, but as to mindfulness, Mindfulness is profitable on all occasions, I declare. The commentary says that the Buddha said, it's like salt, it's desirable on all occasions when there's food. Like an all-round royal minister can also fight or counsel or do other special services equally well. well. In other words, the, um, the emphasis put on mindfulness is constant. Now, if the mind is excited, the mind is sluggish, either way, and nothing works, mindfulness at that time means that one just becomes aware of whatever is going on without trying to have the connection to the impermanent, na impermanent nature of the body and the mind, nor having, trying to calm it down, if neither one works, first one tries whatever, either one of these. But if nothing works, mindfulness means knowing only, just knowing, just being with that which arises. So if there's a physical, uh, unpleasant sensation, one knows it's a physical unpleasant sensation. If there is a thought, one knows there's a thought arising and ceasing again. 
if one notices the breath, one knows that. If one notices the heaviness of the body, one notices that. Whatever it is, just noting. That is, so to say, the last resort. If neither insight nor calm work, then just noting. Whatever it is. The sitting posture, the sensations, the reactions, anything like that. It's profitable on all occasions. It's always helpful. Because with mindfulness, when the mind really does that, one of the others, either calm or insight, will again be possible. So this is a very, um, um, quite important instructions of the Buddha, which he refers to the factors of enlightenment, and you can see that the practice in those days was equally difficult as it is today because people apparently had sluggish minds and they also had excited minds, otherwise he wouldn't have said these things. So we don't have to feel bad that, they, that we can't do it. It's always been like that. That's the way people's minds are. So I, instead of going any further, I think that's enough on this subject. This particular um, explanation is finished here. There are other explanations, of course, but um, this particular one is finished. So if you have questions, you can ask questions now. Yeah, this is different. Uh, is it possible that one mind state lasts for, uh, let me say, more days, or is it always meant uh, it changes in, in the day, comes part of the day, it's rubbish and so or is it also possible? No, it can last. Three, four days. Yes, sure. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully not three, four weeks, but certainly it can last days, yes. Certainly. And then one needs a bit of willpower also to counteract that. But yes, certainly it can last. And one can also sometimes investigate the... Uh, if one can find any particular causes for it, if one can investigate and see what, what was it, what is it that makes the mind now sluggish or what is it that makes the mind excited and try to avoid those causes, if one can find them, which is the recapitulation of which I always speak, you know. Yeah, sure it can last. But it can also change from one meditation to the next, no? Sometimes it's said that there are times of calmness and there are times of of activeness. And in nature it's also the same. Summer Mm. is more active part and winter Mm. is more the calm part. So maybe it's just uh, a period of this and then following. Uh, yes, but one could have both, one can have the active and the calm part in each day. Mornings and evenings could be the calm part, yes. and uh, during the day could be the active part. You know, one could ideally, I mean things aren't ideal, but they could be. Mm-hmm.
we always uh, have, of course, if in the countries where we have a deep winter, we we consider that the uh, time of the year when there isn't so much activity. But you can't keep your meditation on, uh, you know, put away till the winter and then uh, unpack it in the, for the winter time and then pack it away again in mothballs. I can't be done. <laughs> but, but they have, uh, in the rains, they have uh, uh, intensive retreats, for example, and then mm. maybe the other time of year, not so intensive then. Not so rain. intensive, that's right. The intensi- intensity one can um, increase, but one has to keep going with both active and passive in each day. Sure, the intensity we increase. Like what we're doing now is more intense what one does every day. Mm. Okay, anything else? I'm the same thing. I said what what do you observe when the mind is and how fluctuates between elated, more excited and sluggish. How it fluctuates? Oh, how do you notice it? Hmm. Yes, well, as soon as you notice a change, that's when you pay, it, pay attention and, and react to it with the kind of thing you do. I mean, if you, you mean that it changes during the meditation. Yes. Yes. Well, that's the sluggish mind, the one that starts screaming. So, the uh, that's the sluggishness of the mind. When it just starts coming on, the, the thing to do is to open one's eyes immediately, because the closed eyes are very conducive to that to open the eyes and to give oneself a pep talk and to maybe even move the body that can be very helpful and if the mind still remains a bit dreamy then to use inside method because dreaming is trying to um, you know escape from reality and the Buddha wants us to see things as they really are so that's the time to use inside method. Is that what you wanted to know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else? And then we mindfulness has to be there all the time. So yes. Profitable on all occasions. With mindfulness, is that the way to notice that the mind is, you know, falling into a dreamy state. And that's the time then to, first of all, open the eyes, move the body, and then use inside method to get out of the dream into reality. We are already living in a dream, and if we then dream inside the dream, and uh, that can be done actually at night, you know, one can dream that one is dreaming. And that's what we do if we get into a dream while we're 
in meditation and we're dreaming that we're dreaming that's too much (laughs) (laughs) mindfulness if you dream that you dream (laughs) (laughs) I think I think it's a double dream (laughs) okay anything else Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Go inside of yourself and try and find a feeling of peacefulness, a feeling of ease. Go in into your inner being. Become aware that there is an inherent peacefulness within as if your mind was going inside of yourself into your heart and now enlarge that feeling of peacefulness, which may be just a tiny spot within your heart, make it bigger and bigger to fill you from head to toe. Now become aware of what that feels like. It's active and yet completely peaceful. It has love included in it. And now give the gift of your love and your peace. 
to the person nearest you in this room, filling him or her from head to toe with love and peace. And now give that same gift to everyone here, filling everyone with love and peace, the love that's embedded in that peacefulness, the greatest gift we have to give, fill everyone with it. Now give this greatest gift of love and peace to your parents, filling them from head to toe, embracing and surrounding them with love and peace. Now think of all the people you know, friends and acquaintances, colleagues at work, people in shops, offices, 
gives them all equally the same gift of love and peace love embedded in peace that feeling of being at one with all there is that all these people whom you know partake in that feeling And now let the feeling of love and peace, of at-oneness with all that exists, flow out of your heart to beings everywhere, wherever you can think that there might be people or animals or beings that we can't see. Let it flow out, embracing, comforting, energizing and renewing. Let it flow first near and then further and further like a flood that covers everything the whole country the whole globe the whole universe at oneness togetherness lovingness peacefulness, all coming from your heart, pervading as far as the strength of the heart will go.
Feel how the love and peace in your own heart increase and enlarge the more you let it flow out of it. Become one with that feeling of love and peace. Being it, generating it, giving it. so that as many beings as possible can benefit. Put your attention back on yourself and the point within you where love and peace are generated. Anchor that point firmly so that you always have access to it. Let peace fill you from head to toe and love surround you. there be love and peace in all beings' hearts.